You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Ellen Linsner is the Director of Para High Performance for U.S. Rowing, where she focuses on athlete identification and development. Previously, she served as the Director of Inclusion and Advocacy at Community Rowing, a Move United member organization in Boston, where she and her team of coaches and staff pioneered a model for serving people with disabilities, military veterans, and underserved youth that has become a national standard. So, Ellen, I know that you're with U.S. Rowing, but and so I want to talk about the competitive side of the sport, but I thought maybe uh, for starters, we would just talk about, you know, the sport in general, you know, what, um, for those that are, uh, you know, not familiar with the sport, what is, what is the sport of rowing and why would, why would someone, uh, why should someone participate or, and, you know, try out the, the sport? Sure. Well, I think that, the sport of rowing in general, whether you're a, a, an athlete with a disability or a master's rower or a young person, I think one of the unique things about rowing is you don't have to have started at a very young age in order to be quite successful. It's one of those sort of late start type of sports, hmm. but it's also a life sport when you can do, uh, we have competitors, you know, that train and still enter regattas on the water well into their 80s. So it, it's, it has a unique flow to it, but it's also unique in that it really rewards the effort. It really rewards the hard work. And by that, I mean just the, the long-term view, the dedication of being willing to um, put the time in in order to be as successful as you want. Now, and I, and I think that with rowing, um, it, it is just a matter of time and appropriate practice to get to a point where it's quite enjoyable. <laughs> and that may be different for, uh, you know, basketball. You may never, you know, master the free throw or you may, you know, it, it's it's a little bit different in that as you as you build the engine and by the engine, I mean your own body. Uh, gaining endurance and power because it's one of those unique sports that requires both. Mm-hmm. A typical distance is about 2,000 meters for racing. So that's going to take, depending on your boat class, it could be a five or six minute race, or it could be an 11 minute race. Then it need power and endurance there. So those are, those are things that the body can adapt to that type of training. Mm-hmm. You don't need a lot of specialized skills coming into it. You just have to love the water and love to put the time in <laughs> but uh but that, that's what i'd say about the sport in general it has a broad appeal um because we don't see a lot of early specialization you don't feel left out if you've only taken up your oars um as a master's rower after college you know that that's a very a lot of um entry points to the sport that are later than say, um, you know, you see soccer and football and different things where the athletes are starting at quite a young age. Um, and uh, for right now, that's not really the typical um, pathway for, for rowers. You, you mentioned love of water. And that's one of the things that I definitely wanted to kind of hit upon. I mean, I, um, 
my I, I lived when I was two or three years old in Hawaii. And so I mm. learned, learned to swim before I learned to walk. So I've always okay. had this love for water. Um, and so if what is it what is it about you know being out on the water and you know just you know in terms of you know when the sun reflects off the water and just kind of all of the and you're off obviously outside in nature what are yeah. what are what are some of the the benefits of of just you know for the for those reasons uh, of to, to take on or take up rowing well sure it's um well it's it's a beautiful thing of course um to be out on the water but it's all the more beautiful when you have perfected your craft. So it's a little more tricky than uh, than jumping in a canoe or a kayak, uh, a little more balance involved. So what I like to think about rowing as, yes, it's that outdoor element, the solitude of being on the water, generally in nature, although there are some urban um, mm-hmm. race courses and settings where you're kind of rowing downtown. But it's also that, that fascination with what's difficult. Uh, it, it's a bit like, in a weird way, it's kind of like golf. You know, you go out there time and time again, and what you're seeking is that one perfect swing where you nail the ball perfectly and it goes as far as you want it to and where you want it to go. And that is enough to sustain you for the, you know, six other times you've gone out there and you, you come home a little frustrated. So that, that, that continuous absorption in a sport that is, is challenging enough, it's enjoyable enough, but there's always that challenge there, the mystery of how to excel. Um, mm. You can catch that quite early because if you have a few good strokes and you want to master it and then you become a student of the sport because there's a bit of physics involved, there's a bit of leverage Mm. Then there's a bit of, you know, just plain boatsmanship, I'll call it, becoming confident about uh, the handling of boats and the handling of oars. And I think there's a certain confidence or or belief in yourself when you become competent as a person around boats. And I and I think that 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 can be pretty unique. And I think that you know, in I've done coaching on a bunch of different levels, and one of the things I love about it, especially if uh, an athlete is one of the only people in their family that may be the rower, um, you know, you have a kid, and then maybe the, the teachers or the mom or dad at home are like, oh, I wish they would be more organized, or I wish they would be more focused, and then they come and watch them row this very difficult thing which requires the utmost focus to do well especially in a team boat and very organized in terms of managing yourself getting your own equipment down to the dock it is a really beautiful thing when you can see your son or daughter involved in this sport which you don't even know how to do yourself and you suddenly you have this new appreciation for the skill uh, that 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 they that your son or daughter puts forth, and it, it allows you to see differently. And I've I've had that experience with parents, uh, with you know teachers that may come down and watch, and they think, "Wow, now I know what could possibly make this person tick because I see that they can actually be very focused. They can actually be very organized." They can be very, um, you know, sport is a thing where, you know, you really need to be able to be counted on. 
you need to be able, people need to be able to mm-hmm. depend on you quite a bit. You need to depend on yourself, of course. But there is something about it that lends itself to those metaphors of personal growth that you might hear about rowing and teamwork. But it's really that difficult thing that you become a student of and you you gain some proficiency in this thing where, you know, you look at it from the side and you're like, how on earth does anyone do that? And so um, I think it has its own kind of built-in rewards because it really builds that that confidence and your you know, the way you feel about knowing how to do something well. Yeah, I love the idea of the mystery over the mastery, right? <laughs> yeah. The mystery over mastering something and 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 accomplishing something. I know the yeah. best golf, some of the some of the great golfers, you know, are always wonder if, if they can master master the game as sure. well. So yeah. Rowers yeah. Are the a life same sport, way. right? It's another life sport. You'll spend your whole life chasing that perfect golf swing, and you'll spend your whole life in rowing. You're really what you're doing is you're chasing the perfect catch the perfect timing for that blade to go into the water without slowing the boat down and then being able to add to boat speed. That's the thing you'll, you'll chase the rest of your life in rowing. <laughs> and, and you mentioned equipment a little bit. So let's, let's talk about that in terms of just um, what are the pieces of equipment for this, for the sport in general? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's essentially, uh, you know, if you would imagine a rowboat, um, you know, you've got oar locks, you've got a seat, you've got a hull underneath you. But the sport of rowing different from, like I said earlier, from canoe kayaking or from uh, uh, from uh, anything else you might do there is the, the sliding seat. Um, now, not every person uses a sliding seat. They, they may have a disability that limits their lower body function. But um, the sliding seat and the narrow hull really... Mm-hmm delineate the difference between what we do and rowboat rowing. So mm-hmm. the warlocks will be there, but they'll be out on outriggers so that we have the most narrow mm-hmm. shell we could possibly have for, for speed. Um, and then that sliding seat allows the full measure of leg power to be engaged in propelling the boat. And, and so, uh, and does every, uh, rowboat have outriggers? Um, well, I guess when we're talking the difference between a, a rowing shell and a rowboat, uh, the rowboat, the oarlocks will sit on the gunnels of the right. boat itself. Mm-hmm. And so now we bring the, the gunnels in, the sides of the boat are in narrow, so you have to have the outrigger. So yes, anything related to our sport of rowing um, is generally a narrow rowing shell with a fixed riggers um, that will support the oar lock. And then from there, you've got a system of levers, uh, the oars that in, in, in your hand. You can, you can row with two oars, and that's called sculling, mm-hmm. two smaller, more narrow, uh, smaller blades, I guess. And then sweep rowing are the typical, the big boats, the team boats, the eight-person boats, the four-person boats. Sweep rowing is a much longer oar, and each person in the in the crew only has one oar. So it's a it's a longer lever, and you're you're alternating side to side, port and starboard, uh, with those oars to bring the whole thing together and make it sing. So uh, the oars are a bit bigger, longer, uh, longer levers for sweep rowing and um, shorter and oars on each side, each person having uh, an oar in each hand as opposed to just rowing with one side. 
So I think it's important, I think, for those that maybe are listening to just, they might have one of two pictures in their mind. They might have the rowboat that you go out and take out on a park lake or that you take out fishing or the boat that, you know, that you see in the, in the competition that are, that, that's long and, as you said, more narrow of a haul. Um, and so um, when we talk about, you know, like Paralympic rowing, um, mm-hmm. it, it, let's talk about like the different um, competitions. You know, is there is there single rowing competitions? Sure, and then sure. You mentioned obviously, I mean, and partners or duos, and then and on and on. So let's walk through those maybe. Yeah. So I guess probably the easiest way to think about rowing is if you thought about uh, you know track and field, where in in the fall for a track and field is usually like a cross country race, long distance racing. That's what we do in the fall. It's called head racing, where there are multiple people racing against the clock, single file. You know, with like curves in the river and going under a bridge or around a buoy and all kinds of challenges like that. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and those are long distance, the way you might run cross country, which is also you're you're off the track, you're running mm-hmm. over the river and through the woods and all that. Um, so then we've got we've got an indoor season, which is uh, ergometer racing, similar to track and field. They come inside and they have a, an indoor indoor season. So that's all done with rowing machines that can be synced up to computers. So you could have a, a room full of a hundred rowing machines all at once and you can determine the winner uh, of a certain distance or a certain time. And then in the spring and summer is more sprint racing. That's where we go six lanes across, again, very similar to track and field, six lanes across, you line up, there's a start command and everybody goes and the first one to the finish line wins. So all of those things, other than indoor racing, which is all pretty much individual, all of those things involve Singles, one person rowing with two oars. Uh, doubles, uh, two people in a boat, each of them with the two sculling oars. Um, then you've got fours, four people, and those could be sculling or sweep. So we have a few different um, versatility there. And then the eights, the the big boats are called the eights, and that's what you'd see uh, collegiate racing. A lot of high mm-hmm. schools will do um, eights and fours. So those those all events um, are ones you'd see typically at at any type of on water racing, whether it be fall head racing or spring or summer sprint racing. Okay, and and so if if someone uh, if you're hosting a, a how to clinic, um, mm-hmm. um, and, and and even just at a, at an introductory level, uh, maybe at an event or something, uh, how do you? Uh, how do you approach an athlete that hasn't even tried the sport yet? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I can speak from a lot of that. And a lot of coaches in the country are still, even at the college level, um, they're recruiting walk-ons. You know, you, you, your coach goes stand in the cafeteria, look for people that would be suitable um, athletically and uh, try and get them to, to come out for the sport. So there's a lot of that that still goes on um, in rowing, even at uh, some of the collegiate levels. It definitely goes on at the high school levels. Um, so what you simply do is you find athletes who would be willing to try something new. There's a, there's a certain um, confidence that's needed if you're going to take up a new sport as a as a 14 or 15 year old or, or even beyond that. So you need, you need to look for people that are confident and people that have uh, some inclination toward athletic competition and, and what goes involved with that. Um, and then for the most part, the easiest place is to sometimes just either uh, 
bring a boat to show them like, yes, you can actually do this and you get to come and touch the boat and all that, but also easy to um, carry a rowing machine to an event, to a school or set it up somewhere in a cafeteria. Or if you have an intro day to a boathouse where people haven't been there before, oftentimes you just will um, start on the rowing machine because it's easy. Anyone can do it. There are a number of adaptations that we have on hand when we do something like this in case uh, a person with a disability shows up and wants to learn. So it's quite easy to uh, teach the basics of the rowing stroke on the rowing machine, get a little feel for it, uh, what the motion would look like and, and, and all of that. And then usually that's a typical first day or maybe even first couple of days at the boathouse where you, you need to learn not only the the technique and, and how to do the rowing stroke, but there's this whole other language you've got to learn because you're going to go out on the water and the coach is not in the boat with you. The coach, you know, you're on a body of water that you don't, you don't own. You're generally having to navigate, you know, your session. Uh, I'm speaking as a coach, navigate my session out on say the Charles river in Boston where, you know, we've got Harvard eights and then we've got the power boaters and the fishermen and the canoes and the kayaks and the high school novices. And, you know, you're managing a lot. So it's very important before you go out on the water that we, we have the right set of shared language and shared commands so that everybody knows what to do. Everybody knows how to do it and everybody knows how to get back home <laughs> um, because all of that would be managed um, by the coach in um in a, a motorized boat that goes alongside the rowers so mm. calling out commands um you know it, it's a bit similar to sailing if you have a sailing program same that they're everyone is going to be focused around a coach and a launch and the coach has to be able to get your attention they have to have a megaphone or something that's loud enough and there's you know certain areas you can go and can't go and all of that has to be understood before we get on the water, what does the catch mean? What does port mean? What does it mean to be starboard? Where's the stern of the boat? What does it mean to weigh enough? All that lingo has got to be generally understood before you get on the water. And I was going to ask you, maybe you probably just mentioned a few of those. I was going to ask what are some of the common uh, commands or common calls. And so obviously just that basic knowledge of port and stern and, and starboard is, is, is important. And yeah, you mentioned, yeah. you mentioned Ellen about the motion. Can you yeah, describe yeah. what that motion is? Yeah, sure. If you're somebody who um, is fully mobile or maybe you have a small mobility impairment either way, but if you have, you know, uh, generally um, walking and jumping without assistance, the rowing stroke is very much, if you were if you were to squat down a bit and jump up, that's essentially the same body motion. You're you're using legs and the opening of the body to kind of propel the oar handle through the stroke. And on the mm -hmm. rowing machine, we do it with the just the, that rowing machine handle there. Now, if you're if you're using a fixed seat, if you have limited mobility, it's fine, it's no problem. You're going to do that same idea but it will feel more like a rowboat type of stroke where you're going to lean forward. Your oars will be behind you. And then you're going to pry your body back and draw the handles toward you. And the trick is to get the oars out of the water before the handles kind of bump into your, into your <laughs> abdomen there. So that's, that takes some skill there. So the, the idea is leverage. If you have uh, full use of your legs, that's a big component in adding leverage 
And if you don't, we really try and maximize through, through rigging. Um, and that's like gearing on a bicycle, how heavy the gear is. Um, we maximize that through different oar lengths for someone in a fixed seat so that they have that ability to lever, uh, lever their body weight to help move the handles. So we like to say that force is mass times acceleration. So we're trying to apply some force um, and our body is the mass and we try and accelerate our own body mass in order to move the boat. Um, I guess that's maybe oversimplified, but that's essentially what it is. It's, um, it's a cool thing to use your body to propel a boat and uh, you use a much more of your whole body um, even in the fixed seat rowing more, more upper body motion than you would see in um, like the canoe kayakers in the Olympics. Like they're very, you know, their arms are going crazy, but they're quite steady in the upper body. Mm -hmm. We would be using our upper body. Um, we do have um, events for um, folks that have maybe a higher spinal cord injury that will use primarily their arms. But for the most part, we're always looking for ways uh, to, find opportunities to use the rowers body mass to help, help move the oars through the water and therefore the boat or the boat well, through the water is more accurate, I suppose. Yeah. And I liked your, you already mentioned your, I liked your physics reference. So there you go. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> you already brought in the, phys, the ph physics into the mix. Um, and, and, and since, and since you've already kind of um, started to, to, to take us down the path of, of adaptations, uh, in the in the competitive space, obviously at the Paralympic level or the national or international level, uh, I know classification is always uh, a, a, a tricky topic and subject. But can can you share with us what the the, like the current classifications and, and and competition categories are? Yeah, sure. Um, and for para rowing, we've not been around all that long. It's a Paralympic sport. Two thousand and eight was our first. Um, Paralympic Games um, uh, for rowing, for para rowing. And, uh, you know, we have only three distinct categories um, and five events within those categories. So swimming, I think, have a lot of different categories. Mm -hmm. uh, we, have, we have three general categories, and those are called PR1, PR2, and PR3. Now, PR1 just means para rower one that's one level mm -hmm. of classification para rower two para rower three so um three being having the the, the most mobility the the pr3 have uh can use the sliding seat they have uh uh functional movement in their in their legs so that they they it's restricted generally you know at at their ankle is is one is one element of it but the pr3 would use a typical equipment um, that you would find in any club across the U.S. Very few adaptations because they're able to use their legs in the rowing stroke. Um, and so that's that's PR3 is essentially um, uh, what you'd find at a, any club in the U.S., uh, just that the athlete have some restrictions to that length, that they maybe can't get all the way up the slide, or maybe the restriction is in the upper body where, uh, like an herbs palsy, where this restriction on one arm, you can also have visual impairments at that level where the movement itself isn't restricted. But um, if the person um, has a visual impairment that is um, uh, is eligible, then that's that all that encompasses all of that. Mm. And uh, so that that's that's PR three, and they have a four person event, 
and a two-person event for that. And it's interesting when para rowing came onto the scene, it was at the very beginning of these discussions about um, gender equity or gender parity or uh, having the same number of seats for men and women. So when they uh, brought in para rowing, it went automatically, all the team boats are mixed. So we have the PR34 is two men and two women with a coxswain, and that's the person who steers the boat. Um, that person does not need to have a disability. They can, they, they, they may have one, but that's not required there. But the, the crew itself will have two men and two women. Hmm. And then uh, for the double, the two-person PR3 event, the same, one woman, one man. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a neat uh, way that we mm -hmm. think about para rowing because, you know, that's a big deal at the Paralympic international Paralympic level is finding uh, ways to promote the equal numbers of seats for men and women. So we already have it <laughs> it's just kind of built into our program. So the, the next category is the PR2, which are the next level of a more restricted uh, range of motion. So um, these athletes will, will not be able to use a sliding seat for, for practical purposes, maybe a little bit for training, but really not a full functional uh, use of the lower body in the rowing stroke. So they would be restricted to upper body movement. Um, and uh, that can encompass anything. The, these athletes may not be necessarily use a wheelchair for their whole life, but the restriction in the rowing stroke, I mean, that's what classification comes down to is mm -hmm. how does the disability impact the functional movements that are required for rowing? So that the PR2 will be a mainly an upper body uh, rowing stroke. And um, the PR1 will then have, uh, that's the, the final category for us. And that's just a single. And there's a, a one man and, uh, and then an event for the women. And that is um, usually a limitation where only the, um, the upper, upper body can be used in the rowing stroke. So you may see um, like a, a spinal cord injury uh, something like that, where um, athletes in this category typically would be um, use a wheelchair for day-to-day -day activities, but they get out of the wheelchair when they come into the boat. So that's a something that I've heard from some athletes that has been a, an interesting difference where there are sports where you stay in your chair and compete in your chair. And then this is a sport where you would, you would leave the chair on the dock and, and you have your own specialized seat that is um, set to your specifications. And um, so that's, that's another, another difference there. Um, and the PR one and the PR two boats, they use a slightly different hull to account for, they, they want to um, give it a bit greater stability. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. And then there are pontoons on the PR one hull that um, serve as extra stabilizers. So if you've ever seen like outrigger canoes where you've got that one pontoon offsetting it. Mm -hmm. So a PR one rower, uh, that's the one where it has, uh, um, uses just the upper body only. Um, they will have stabilizing pontoons on both sides of the riggers to just so that the athlete can, you know, feel very comfortable and, and uh, in their seat and be able to do the sport without without really um too much concern of, of a cap size you know that's what we want to we want to really make sure the athletes are safe and um you know feel feel good balance as they go and try and execute their sport 
So in the PR2 category, are they racing individually as singles or is there? Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, that's, um, they have a double at the Paralympic games and at the world championships, there are a few other, um, events that support these bigger boats, but the Paralympic program itself will be just those five events. So the PR three, four and double, and then the PR two double, which is, that's a mixed double. And then the PR one men single PR one women single. Okay. So yeah, so PR one has basically one category, but two events. Yes, yeah, one okay, gotcha. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so how? Uh, so since we're talking obviously about kind of at the competitive level at this point, how does uh, a, a prospective athlete um, train? What what are some of the training components mm-hmm. for rowing? Yeah, again, it really kind of depends on on where they are in their, in their life, what their age is, and, you know, somewhat also consideration about, um, was their disability acquired uh, or were they born with it? So there are a few different considerations, but for the most part, um, we'd like to, as I said earlier, introduce them to a rowing machine because it's pretty basic. Almost anyone can do it. Then as we move to the water, we take some very slow steps to make sure that they know the language, have a, have the appropriate setup and equipment that it's, that's functional and it works for them. And early on, it's much more about learning the technique on the water because uh, the boats are quite light. So it's hard to, I think it's kind of interesting because a lot of people like, you know, they row their first couple of days. They're like, geez, this feels like pretty easy. Everyone always says rowing is so hard. Like it feels easy because it's a skill that you have to find that resistance. You know, like if you were on a bike, you'd throw in that heavy gear and you're like, oh, that's a, now I feel that. Mm -hmm. It's a skill to find the right resistance to really propel the boat. And, And so oftentimes people people maybe think, well, that's not really that hard of a workout because it takes time. It takes a bit of time to really, have the appropriate catch to kind of build the resistance where you, so you're kind of building your technique and fitness as you go. And and then after a while, then you think, okay, now, now that I'm actually using my body parts properly here, now I'm, I'm sore everywhere and <laughs> I can tell that it's a good workout, but um, the training overall, um, once you get into it uh, again, the, the technique is the most important part so that you, that you don't have bad habits because it's basically learning the skill and then you're going to have to repeat it. You know, if you want to be an expert, you know, 10,000 times, 10,000 hours, all, all that Malcolm Gladwell stuff. Um, so it's important to get the technique, right? So that's a big focus for any novice rower of any ability is, is proper boat handling, proper safety and proper technique. Um, and that technique is on the rowing machine as well as on the water. It takes some time. Then, um, generally speaking, you would be training more endurance. Um, good crossover sports include cycling, mm-hmm. swimming, you know, these type of uh, triathlon, endurance type sports, because we have that power component. But 2000 meter race is a long race, you know, uh, in a in a PR1 single. So it's it's definitely an aerobic endurance sport and most of the training that would be done um you know even at the national team level is is uh steady state low intensity but uh, you know lots of strokes um if you're if you're a junior or still pretty new we 
we don't do so much just endurance training because we want we want you to be able to find the power on the stroke and do a few different things. So it really depends on on the age of the athlete as they come in and um, you know what their first goals would be if they're on a high school program. Typically, the high school programs are going to start in late March and then they're going to race every weekend, 1500 meters <laughs> every single week until the middle of June. That's a different pathway. A club rower, you know, will probably have fewer opportunities to race, but more time to prepare and uh, take a different pathway. So. And, and one of the things that we really haven't talked about is safety. What, what are some of the built-in, I guess, safety components or measures, or, or if you're at a program, what are some of the safety things to consider? Yeah, sure. Well, all, all of the coaches in every program would be, you know, trained like any other professional coach, CPR, first aid, um, you know, all manner of safety training and uh, safety review for the athletes. But um, generally speaking, uh, passing a swim test is very important. Or if you are not able to pass a swim test, some clubs will allow you to um, to row with a life jacket on, but just because of how much movement we generally have um, in the boat, it, it's it's preferable that the athlete could pass a swim test and be uh, have good water confidence in a situation where they might uh, find themselves in the water because it does happen. Uh, but generally speaking, the athlete and the coach are well trained in, in what to do in that situation. Uh, the motorboat that goes alongside the um, the practice is equipped with uh, additional life jackets, uh, other safety mechanisms, and a way to get uh, athletes, you know, safely back to shore if needed. So all of those things are are good precautions. But I think the main thing is um, learning to I don't want to say fear the water, but you need to respect the water. The water. I, I mean, I've been coaching for thirty years. Generally speaking, you know, I'm on somewhat high alert at all times. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm focused on my athletes. I'm focused on the practice, but I am always aware of the water conditions, the weather conditions, the um, what's going on around me with other other users of the waterway. So I, I just think that um, I think it really is about the training and the preparation for people understanding uh, like why rowing is so disciplined um, because we need to be able to get people's attention quickly in the event of an emergency, uh, whether it's, Hey, this is why a lot of times like, Oh, well, there's no talking in the boat. Well, that's not very much fun. Well, <laughs> you need to be able to hear me when I need to say, Hey, stop the boat. We're turning around. We're going back. Um, but I think in general, um, good preparation kind of takes care of most of that. The boat itself, um, uh, we teach athletes, if anything does happen, you stay with the boat. You know, yes, we want you to pass a swim test so that we know you're, you feel comfortable in the water, but the boat will be um, equipped with the, the stern deck and the bow deck are watertight. They'll have porthole covers that are, that are sealed. So the boat is not, you know, shouldn't um, sink, you know, that's mm -hmm. going to be, uh, you, you hold on to that. Uh, the pontoons are the other safety device for, um, uh, it, and it's funny because, um, you know, we, as, as we stay involved in Paris sport, recognizing that so much 
is really universal design. So where um, para rowing used to be the only one having pontoons, um, during the pandemic, everyone in this country really had to row singles, no team boat rowing. Cause what is it? Do you have to be six feet apart from everybody in, mm-hmm. in a rowing boat? You're much closer than that. So the only way we could row practically was to put people in singles. And when you think about like these little tiny rowing shells that are quite expensive and the club is, you know, wants to be able to have available for every user, like how are we going to do that? So you see young kids who normally their first experience would be they they get into an eight because that's an easy thing. You got eight kids. They're all going to be <laughs> listening to one coxswain. It's easy to control. They can all learn the same thing. Um, suddenly, then you've got eight singles. And how are we going to do that? Oh, we'll mm. put the pontoons on because it's not easy to flip a single with pontoons. So now we have it, it, it's kind of was a great equalizer in some ways because, you know, four or five years ago, the only one on the river with pontoons oh that's a para rower from far away you tell it's a different hull it's got those pontoons on but now you can't you can't tell we've got like adults and kids who want to continue to row but team boat rowing wasn't really um a possibility during the pandemic but we had lovely weather it's nice water so everybody adapted right everybody mm-hmm. adapted and took the pontoons that are usually traditionally just for for para rowing and put them on any single in the boathouse. And, and it was great. And the kids loved it. So I think it's here to stay that, um, at, you know, I even um, worked at a, a high school that did the same thing. Like, how are we going to get these kids on the water safely? We have a body of water. It's not a little protected pond. It's a big public river. Let's get those pontoons and put them on there. So it was, I had a lot of experience with pontoons. So I knew how to attach them properly and get all that squared away. But um, you're seeing more and more the things that are helpful, supportive, and useful for an athlete, or maybe they were designed for an athlete with a disability, actually have a lot of use mm-hmm. in the general population. And I, and I think that's a great example of that. Exactly. Ellen, uh, Ellen, the last question I have for you is, you know, where can can folks do this? You know, obviously there are local rowing clubs, but, you know, if you're wherever on the East Coast, West Coast, North, Central, South, where where can people uh, participate in, in rowing programs? Yeah, the answer is like almost anywhere, um, especially because um, with the rowing machine, again, the pandemic changed so much. The rowing machine, I think, and, and this probably was happening before the pandemic, but certainly in the pandemic, um, the rowing machine, um, mostly we used to think of as just like a thing that you do until the ice melts and then you can go (laughs) row. It's just like this extra thing that nobody else, nobody really wants to do. We just want to row and get on the water. We generally ignore it as other than just a training mechanism. But, um, you know, lately with the, with the introduction of CrossFit and CrossFit really use a lot of rowing machines Mm -hmm. and these indoor rowing studios are all over the place. Um, and, and you can get an erg in your home. I mean, during the pandemic, a lot of people took the erg at home. And so indoor rowing, um, which used to be this off season training modality that sometimes people raced in, it's kind of emerging as a sport on its own right. And I really encourage a lot of athletes, especially, um, athletes with disabilities as a way where you can have an experience with competition, fairly early on because it, it's, it's manageable. It's doable. Um, there's not the the safety component of being out on the water. 
Um, and we've identified a lot of uh, prospective Paralympic athletes already this year just by doing that, by watching some of the virtual competitions. Hmm. Uh, we've done some in-person stuff with uh, Angel City Sports and the Angel City Games, mm-hmm. trying to introduce indoor rowing to areas where they may not have seen it before or para rowing before. So honestly, you know, if you get in touch with U.S. Rowing, there are program resources on the website, usrowing.org. Um, that's a good way to find out if there is a local on water or even an indoor uh, rowing organization in your area. And uh, the other thing is we can connect people remotely now. So we have athletes that we're trying to identify that may have long-term potential for the Paralympic games, but they may still be juniors or they're still, you know, working in Portland or whatever. Uh, We can keep in touch and manage and even see some of their training. It's kind of cool. You have a heart rate monitor on and you can look and see what this athlete is doing out in, in LA and say, hey, well, great job. You know, I, I see what they're doing. So that the technology piece um, in indoor rowing has helped helped it be a lot more accessible to people, even if they don't necessarily live right on a river or something like that. Hmm. Um, so I think they're really cropping up all over the place. And our challenge um, is to, you know, increase the capacity of, of clubs across the country to support um, athletes with disabilities to um go through their pathways and find the most appropriate level for them. But also we can, we have the ability to connect people um, and people are more, more willing to think about being connected to a a remote resource, even a remote coach, let's just say. So I think that's going to be really exciting for our sport and um, have a lot of fun with that. Awesome. Is there anything else we haven't discussed or that I haven't asked you about? Uh. I don't really think so. It's a lot of fun to talk about it. I think Paralympic rowing is is really going to come into its own in the next uh, few years because we have um, we have so much untapped resources, both from the coaching side and from identifying athlete side. And our aim is to make sure that there are a number of ways where someone can engage with competition and decide whether whether taking it to the next level is the right thing for them. So um, I'm just excited about it, and uh, I think we have we have some fun things on the agenda ahead. 